goodness, speed was again, and he's, oh my goodness, that is huge. It's a white flag for the Cuban. Hi everybody and warm, warm welcome to the Triple Jumpers podcast with me, Marcus Lombardi. Today's guest is the 36-year-old British triple jumper Nathan Douglas. Nathan's personal best is 17.64 meters and he has two international medals, one from the European Outdoor Championships in 2006 and one from the European Indoors in 2007. After that, Nathan started to get a lot of injuries which troubled him for several years. We will talk a lot about his injuries, how he handled them and how he kept working, but we will also go through his biggest competitions and why he thinks triple jumpers can have very long careers. This episode is crowded with a lot of great content, but before we start, I just want to tell you a little bit about what uh, we've done on the website lately. So we've done some new things, we've added a news section where we will post articles about triple jump. For example, we wrote about the US Championship last week, so check that out to get even more insight in the world of triple jump. And also we will soon launch our memorabilia webshop where we will sell autographs, bibs, jerseys, and other triple jump related memorabilia so stay tuned for that but now let's start the eighth episode of the triple jumpers podcast with nathan douglas warm welcome to the triple jumpers podcast nathan douglas hi how you doing thank you for having me how are you doing today i'm good um i'm actually on a bit of a, a rest day from training today but i have some more kind of performance coaching work to do as well. So, so busy, but I'm good. Yeah. Okay. Um, and right now we're, we're in the middle of the season and you've been jumping your furthest jump since 2015 this year with <laughs> 1688. Uh, how has the season been so far? It's been uh, a bit of an up and down season, I suppose, but generally it's been quite confidence building. I think everybody has these kind of seasons, so it didn't really start too well. Um, but in my first competitions, so I needed to kind of find my rhythm. And I'm that kind of triple jumper, really, where I need to start to find my rhythm and get used to the technique that I use. And I think I started to find a little bit of that, and obviously I dropped my 1688. Then struggled a little bit at the, the London Diamond League, just with the conditions, because the wind was swirling a hell of a lot. Um, and I think you could see that everybody, apart from Picardo, really struggled with the conditions so it was a tricky competition yeah and um, what's coming up what's uh, next in the plan for you i'm unsure where i'm going to be competing next actually um we have the british championships at the end of august so obviously i'll be aiming for that before that i'm not sure where i'm going to be competing i need to go back to the kind of uh, speak to my coach and we're going to decide our plan of action from there okay and uh... What are you aiming for? You're aiming for the World Championships? Yeah, most definitely. You know, my aim is obviously to go to those World Championships. That's, you know, I'm in this sport to compete at the very top of the world. So for me, the World Championships is most definitely my aim. So you're 36 years old now and you've been jumping for a long time. Um, Do you still remember why you started track and field and how you became a triple jumper? So I started athletics, actually as young as when I was seven years old. Um, I was at school and some kids were kind of racing the playground and I asked to join in and this one kid just kept on whooping everybody. And so obviously I asked to join in, I, I joined in, I had to win the race. Um, so obviously I'd be the fastest kid in the school, which made me the fastest kid in the school. Um, and I'd never really found something I was good at previously before that. And said so he invited me to my local athletics club, which was very brave of him. When you think of the fact he, you know, I'd just beaten him, uh, but he became one of my best friends, and so that's how I my, joined my local athletics club, Oxford City. It's seven years old, and I just done everything at that age. You know, I just tried every event you can imagine. So I've done a lot of 
sprinting, obviously, but I even done cross country and 800 meters and, you know, all of those kind of events. And then as I got older, I kind of decided to drop some of the events. So, uh, so I kind of focused more on kind of 100 long jump and, and triple jump. Um, but I fell into triple jump because my club didn't actually have a triple jumper at the time. And I remember one indoor sports hall. So over in the UK, we have sports hall events um, where they've done like standing triple jump. And they said to me, do you want to do standing triple jump? I'm like, what's that? I don't even know what it is. Um, so they showed me literally there and then, and I, I just couldn't get the coordination at first. I just didn't understand what was going on. You know, they're trying to show me a hop step and a jump and I was probably doing like two steps and a jump and really confused. Then I must have found it probably within that half an hour of them showing me and actually done okay. Then the outdoor season, I started doing some triple jump and I found out actually, you know, I was pretty good at triple jump. And before I know it, I kind of felt like triple jump had chosen me really. You know, I kind of went from strength to strength in triple jump. I started to win more competitions within triple jump. You know, I still had a passion for long jump and uh, 100 meters as well, but triple jump started to kind of take over. And that's pretty much what, what happened for me really. Yeah, so you gradually became more serious in the in the triple jump and focused on that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I went to university at 18, so I went to Loughborough University at 18, where my, my first coach, Ted King. And when I went to Ted, in my head, I still, you know, I was doing 100 meters still, I was doing long jump, I was doing triple jump, and obviously Ted saw me as, as a triple jumper, because I think at that time I had a PB of maybe 15.50, something like that. Um, but I still looked to him and thought, well, actually, I still want to do a bit of long jump. I still want to do some some 100 metres, you know, and relays and stuff like that because I really found it fun. But Ted had other ideas of kind of making me specialise more in triple jump. And that's kind of what happened over those next three years, really, where I made some some quite big strides in a short amount of time by working with Ted King. Yeah. Um, and when I look back uh, through the archives, I, I can see that you've been jumping in any youth and junior championships except from yeah. from the European under 23 championships in 2003 yeah. um, where you finished 14th uh, would you say you were a late bloomer absolutely I think that's the the perfect way of describing it. I think I was always okay as a junior but I wasn't one of the phenomenal juniors you know I I came through late. I was always really small. So at school, you know, I was really tiny. And then I, you know, I kind of had a bit of a growth spurt up to six foot. So I think, you know, all of those things helped me really. Um, and so I came through late. And like you said, I only went to the European under 23s. Um, and then the year after that is when I actually qualified for my first Olympic Games. You know, so I made quite a big improvement in a short period of time. But you can imagine going from being a kind of junior that hadn't gone to major championships to then go straight to your first Olympic Games, you know, the biggest sporting event on the planet, was a significant jump. <laughs> so the my coaches and my support team around me was obviously quite nervous of me going to compete on the biggest stage on the planet. Yeah, because you qualified for the Olympic Games and uh, well there you finished uh, 13th, only mm. one spot behind the final. <laughs> uh, yeah. It was very frustrating. It was very yeah. frustrating at the time, actually, because for me, I was just going to that Olympic Games thinking, you know, I'm just going to go out here and enjoy myself. You know, I've dreamed of being an Olympian since I was seven years old. I remember having that conversation with my nan at seven years old after my first training session saying to her, you know, I, I want to become an Olympian and I want to win an Olympic medal, you know, that kind of thing. And here I am now at my first Olympic Games. So I was just really happy to be there. And I did. I absolutely enjoyed every single moment. And I went there and I jumped my second longest jump of my career, 1684, I think it was at the time. And I wasn't actually aware that I was nearly in the final until I was having my interview after. And they said to me, you're aware that you actually came 13th by a couple of centimetres. I was like, oh, you're joking. So for me, you know, it had been phenomenal to make an Olympic final on my senior Great Britain debut. At the same time, I was still very happy just to have actually been there, to be honest with you. And um, as you said before, you developed quickly. And if we look back in 2000, you jumped 1462. And four years later, you jumped 1695. And then in 2005, you completely exploded. Um, yeah. Broke the 70 meter mark for the first time in Slovakia in the beginning mm -hmm. of June. And then one month later, um, you won the Manchester 
AAA championships. Uh, yeah, British championships. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and after a personal best of 1734 in the first round, then you popped out 1764 in the second round. Mm. What what happened that day? It was. So if I kind if I kind of go back just just slightly, so you said in in 2004, obviously I jumped 1695 to qualify for the Olympics, which was even in 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 that British Championships that year. I think I went in with a personal best of 16 meters 30, um, and then I left obviously with 1695. You know, on my last round in that competition to qualify for the 2004 Olympic Games. You know, so it really was an incredible surprise for me to be part of that team. And that year, I just finished my degree at Loughborough. And my coach, Ted King, obviously had asked me to move to Birmingham to train full-time with him. So it was my first year of, of training full-time. You know, up until up until that year in 2004, I'd maybe train three to four times a week if I could around my studies, you know, that kind of thing. And maybe once a day, sometimes twice a day. Um, so I moved to Birmingham, trained full-time. And then within that one year, I then went straight over 17 metres in the first competition of, of the season, which I was just ecstatic about you know to finally get over 17 meters so i think i jumped 17 11 in that competition if i remember correctly yeah and then i went to i think it was a competition in in lausanne if i'm correct so i went to the lausanne golden league at that time i think i jumped something like 17 26 or 17 27 and obviously myself and ted were really happy with that and then we were starting to speak about the kind of progressions we'd like to make in the following seasons and my coach said to me, look, if we can go, say, 17.50 next next year, you know, that'd be really good. If we go 17.50 in 2006, that'd be brilliant. And if we could, you know, we could start going, say, 17.80, um, up towards like 18 metres, looking towards the 2008 Olympic Games. I then went to the, the British Championships a few days after Lausanne. And as you said, first round, I don't know, I think 17.32, 34. So I was, again, ecstatic that I've done a PB. Um, but Ted said to me, he goes, right, I want you to drive a little bit harder and I want you to really attack the end of the hop into the step. So I'd done that and I went 17.64. And I almost couldn't believe it, if I'm honest. <laughs> I see it. I remember seeing it pop up on the on the uh, thing on the infield of 17.64 and it almost felt like it wasn't me that had jumped that distance. So it just felt incredible to finally, you know, be jumping those distances and, and proving to myself that I actually really can perform at that kind of level. Um, so it was just fantastic to finally kind of put myself on, on the world scene, really. So that elevated me to number three in the world, which, again, you know, if you if you think about a, the year before, you know, I told you going into that 2004 British Championships, I had a PB of 16.30. You fast forward 12 months and I'm now doing 17.64. You know, so that's, that's a huge increase in a short amount of time. So my mindset had to almost catch up with that as well, really, and handle it. Yeah, um, and then you obviously qualified for the World Championships. Yeah, um, and you went there as one of the favorites, as you said the year before. You uh, made your first Olympic Games, and yeah. now you were a, a favorite in, uh, or one mm. of the, one of a favorite in in uh, at the World Championships. Yeah. Um, and well, there you didn't live up to the expecta- expectation. You didn't make the final. Uh, no. How come you couldn't perform there? It was a it was an interesting time actually. So leading into that World Championships, you can imagine there was a lot of pressure obviously put upon my my kind of young shoulders immediately. You know, the British media were saying that they they felt obviously that I could win a medal, and I was hopeful that I could myself. And then they actually changed that a little bit. They kind of turned the pressure up on me, and they said, "Look, nobody in Great Britain at this moment of time are really performing." So we feel that you are our only gold medal chance for Great Britain. I'm going to say to him, whoa, like just, you know, give me a minute here. Obviously, I'd love to be world champion for sure, but let's just, you know, be a little bit calm. But the way that my head is, I was always calm with those things anyway. You know, I was able to just take it on my shoulders and just be quite flippant with it and say, yeah, it's fine. I can handle those pressures because obviously I want to become world champion. Then when we got over to Helsinki, things started to go a little bit awire. So... I remember having a a pre kind of competition training day with me and Ted, and Ted said to me, "Look, Nathan, I'm just feeling a little bit funny, so I'm going to go off for a walk and I'll be back." And I was like, oh, "Okay, cool." 
So I carried on training and, you know, Ted hasn't come back for about 20 minutes. And then another coach comes over to me and Peter Stanley, his name is, came over to me and said one of the worst things you could say to an athlete. And he was like, Nathan, Nathan, don't panic, don't panic. So obviously, immediately, I panicked, as you can imagine. Um, I said, look, Ted's had a bit of a funny turn. Carry on training and he'll be back in a minute. So I carry on training and I thought, no, forget this. Ted hasn't come back. I need to see if he's okay. So I went over to see where Ted was and Ted was with the medical team. And the medical team had him laid out on a table and Ted was just white as a sheet. He did not look good at all. He looked really, really ill. And so I just made the call and said to Ted, you know what, forget training today. You know, let's have an early night, get some good sleep and I'll, and I'll see you in the morning. So I then went and knocked on Ted's door in the morning and the shower was still going in their apartment. So I thought, OK, you know, Ted's obviously in the shower, just running a little bit late. So I just kind of sat there waiting. And then as the shower door kind of uh, opened or the bathroom door opened, it wasn't Ted that walked out, it was another coach that walked out. And he looked at me and he goes, you don't know, do you? And I was like, don't know what? He's like, Ted was rushed to hospital last night. So now I did panic. Because thinking, what the hell is going on with Ted? You know, you know, why has he been rushed to hospital? Why has nobody told me this? So I immediately went and found our head doctor and said, you know, what's going on with Ted? Is Ted okay? Is he dying? Is he all right? And he said to me, no, he's going to be okay, Nathan, you know, don't panic, don't panic. But then my head started to go a bit irrational. And I thought in my head, well, at this moment in time, the British athletics team are looking at me as their best chance of a gold medal. Would it be smart for them to tell me if my coach was dying? And I didn't believe what he said. I, I just thought to myself, they wouldn't tell me the truth. So I didn't believe that. I then spoke to Ted on the phone and he sounded like he was dying. And he said to me, you know, I'm not going to be able to make it out for the qualifying phase of the World Championships. Now, if you think back, it was only the year before that I went on to the, the kind of senior scene at the Olympic Games. So for, for Ted, someone that I lent on heavily to not be there at the qualifying stage, I thought, this is going to be tricky. But I, you know, I do the best that I can. Ted then said to me, look, he's like, you know what you need to do in a qualifying phase? Get through that. I'll be there for you in the final. I was like, OK, no problem. Look, I'll do that. So it gets to the day to, to compete. And I remember I've warmed up and we're in the call room getting ready. And I remember Christian Malcolm was in there for his 200 metres as well. And it started to rain. Um, and not just rain, actually really started to, to pour down. It was like an absolute storm. You know, thunder and lightning was going off. And I remember it, it rained so badly that it flooded the track. And I hadn't heard of this before and I still haven't heard of this since. They actually postponed the competition until the next morning. Today I was getting ready to compete in the evening, as you can imagine, you know, all these kind of stress hormones and stuff coursing through my body. Then I've gone back to, obviously, our apartment, tried to sleep, haven't really been able to sleep. Got up early in the morning to then go and compete in the qualifying stage. Much nicer day, you know, nice sunshine and stuff. Went out there to compete. And I remember in the first round, I think I went down and jumped maybe, say, 16.40. And I thought... That was a bit weird. Why have I only jumped that? Kind of, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I jumped 1764. So I put nothing of it. And so I went over to um, the person that was looking after and I said, you know, we just had a little bit of a conversation. I was like, all right, fine. We get it for the second round. Second round, I went down and I fouled. So now I was in the worst position that every horizontal, horizontal jumper knows about if you've been to a world championship or, or you know, qualifying stage. And I have one jump to obviously make it for the final. And so all of a sudden, I kind of realised where I was competition-wise. I just signed my first professional contract with Nike at the time. Obviously, I realised that Ted was in hospital and I was thinking, what's wrong with him? And, you know, is he dying? Is he even going to be OK in a couple of days? You know, I suddenly started kind of realising how many people were watching me in the stadium and all the people back home. And so obviously, inevitably, you can imagine kind of everything just came down on me in that moment, really. And I think at that point, I didn't really have the skills to handle that situation. So third round, I went down to do the best I could. And, I, and again, I think I maybe jumped 16.30, 16.40. And so before I knew it, I'd bombed out of the World Championships. And so I think, you know, I look back on that time and it was a very, very hard time for me to take mentally um, and then to go through. But I just think, you know, really, I just didn't have the skills to handle it. And I think Ted's illness was the catalyst for it in the fact of it was just so hard to be there without somebody that I lent on so heavily that I knew could say one thing to me in a competition and turn it around. So I just think that that situation was too early in my career for me to be able to handle. But a massive lesson 
and something that put me in good stead for the rest of my career for absolute sure. What about Ted? Did he recover? Yeah, Ted Ted recovered and he was okay. So okay, which was good. obviously fantastic news for sure. The year after that, in 2006, uh, you yeah. you won your first medal at the major championships after finishing second at the European Championships uh, on a yeah. on a historic stadium in actually my hometown Gothenburg. Oh uh, wow, okay. What was it like getting your first medal? Well that that was quite an interesting time for me as well actually. Um because I started that season quite well. I think I went over to the Prefontaine and I think I jumped 17 20 something like that if I remember correctly. Um so first time over in the states to go and compete so that was that was really good to go over there and obviously to to be in Oregon and you know the kind of state of of Nike basically you know that's where Nike headquarters are a base etc so I knew that I needed to perform and so I went over there and done okay then second competition of the season I was 1747 maybe in Geneva so I knew I was in really good shape and then all of a sudden um I started to struggle in training I just kept saying to Ted, I'm, like, I'm just really tired all of the time. Like I don't understand what's what's going on, what's what, what's wrong with me. But I was struggling to train, I was struggling to compete, and here I was again, now kind of struggling around 16 and a half meters. And I think I don't get why I'm jumping a, a meter down on what I've jumped early on in the season. Um, and I started noticing all these kind of symptoms that I was having. Like I found that I was a lot more irritable, and I, kind of, I was angry more often. I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't training well. I remember being in the gym and. And saying to my coach, you know, I feel like I'm scraping the bottom of, of a barrel here for energy. Like I don't understand what's going on. Like, why am I so tired and wanting to try and sleep all the time, but then I'm struggling to. So I, re I was really, really struggling with that. And so leading up to that European Championships, as much as I'd already jumped 1740 that year, because of these kind of fatigue issues, I had no idea what I was going to be able to do at that European Championships. So I remember in the qualifying phase, I remember keeping on my leggings because my legs just felt so tired. So I kept them on to kind of try and give me a little bit of extra support. And somehow I managed to qualify for the final. You know, I'll be honest, still to this day, I'm not quite sure how, but I just kind of believed that I could and I qualified. And then after that qualify, and I remember back at the hotel, because uh, Ted was here now, so Ted was okay to buy, by the way. Yeah. So me and Ted was in the, in the hotel in 2006. And I said to Ted, look, I said, I'm so tired that I know I can't compete with these boys for six rounds. There's no way that I can, but I truly believe that I can just get one jump out. And so we got there in the final, and I remember for the first round being stood there, getting ready to go, and just being wrapped with nerves. And the reason I was wrapped with nerves is because obviously the year before, I just messed up in Helsinki. And so for me, I really wanted to show people what I could do, but here I am kind of battling these, these strange symptoms where I was just so tired. And so I was just really nervous. I ran down and I ran through the pit. Didn't jump at all. I was just so nervous. And I was just remember saying to myself, "Come on, Nathan, like you know, get yourself together. You can do this." Second round, I remember standing there to jump, and the the high jumper, um, unfortunately, who passed away a couple of years ago, a good friend of mine, Jermaine Mason. I remember hearing him shout from the crowd, "Come on, Dougie, you can do this!" I remember thinking, "I, I can do this," you know. And the people here supporting me, let's go. And obviously, I ran down and I jumped over 17 meters. And I was like, wow, like, how have I done this? Because I just knew how tired I was. Like, how have I jumped over 17 meters? But then that kind of gave me a bit of a, a shot and a little bit of a, of a boost that I kind of needed. And then I think the next round, if it was the next round, I'm not sure if it was that round or the next round, I then went down and jumped 17-20. And I almost couldn't believe that I'd managed to pull this out because I just knew how tired I was. And after that round, it's, it's almost like it just shocked my system so much that I then went into extreme tiredness and I knew that if anybody jumped further, I wasn't going to be able to respond. So Christian was already Olsen. Christian Olsen had already gone miles out on his own anyway. So I knew there was no catching him. So I was just kind of hoping and praying that Nelson Avora or Philip Tadoru or Marion Prayer, you know, some of these kind of legends of the game as well, really weren't able to, weren't going to be able to go any further than me. Um, and they wasn't. So I managed to, to walk away from that competition battling these fatigue symptoms and come away with my first European medal. Now, I then found out, this is having to go fast forward just a little bit, I then found out three years later uh, of why I'd been struggling with these symptoms because I struggled from 2006 to 2009, really. Um, 
that basically I got diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. So I, I had no idea, obviously, I was battling that. So it, it was quite crazy for me to be battling chronic fatigue syndrome, but then actually go out of the 2006 European Championships and still manage to, to get a medal. Wow, yeah, that was, I, I think that was a huge performance to still manage to, you know, get a medal, uh, although you had those uh, fatigue syndromes. Um, okay, and uh, in 2007, um, at the European Indoor Championships, um, it took place in, in Birmingham, where, mm. you, where you live, um, and the championships was very good for Team Great Britain, and especially in the triple jump, as you won silver and your compatriot Philips Idobo won. Um, yeah. What was it like having a championships uh, on home soil and what's your thoughts after the competition? Well, again, it was, it was a weird one because I knew I was still battling these chronic fatigue symptoms. So we had changed yeah. my training a lot to kind of uh, to freshen me up. So I was training a lot less than I'd ever trained before, but we we're still kind of trying to get to, uh, to the bottom of it because we didn't know what was going on. But mentally, I was a lot more confident because obviously I'd now won my, my first international medal at the Europeans the year before. So this time I went into this European indoors, you know, determined to do really well. And obviously I wanted to win gold, as you can imagine. So to be on what was home turf and to be in the city where I train was amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I think, you know, at, at this moment in time, I'd say that's probably the best competition I've had of my career. It really was. And... And the reason being was because I was just so determined to to win that gold medal, really. I know I wasn't quite able to catch Phillips, but I remember in the competition, Phillips went down first. No, I went down first, and I think I got 17.05, something like that. So I thought, okay, cool, that's solid. That means I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm up there and I can kind of do okay and build from that. Then I think Phillips went straight down and jumped 17.56, which was the, the furthest jump in the world. And I remember seeing it and thinking, okay, this means I've got to go further. And so every round, I gave it absolutely everything that I could to, you know, to surpass that mark. And I wasn't quite able to get it, which I managed to improve to 17.47, which was the second longest jump in the world at the time, and my indoor personal best. And I had some fouls around 17.70, 17.80, and I just couldn't quite get them on the board. So it was frustrating, but at the same time, the series of jumps that I had in that competition for me was was just phenomenal for, for, for me, to be honest with you. And so... As much as I would have loved to have obviously won a gold medal, I have very fond memories of the fact of that being in the town where I train, having a home crowd around me, you know, everybody in the stadium kind of clapping for me and myself and Phillips going toe-to-toe to see who could get it. And, you know, you, nobody knew who was going to really win that competition until it was over because round by round, I was just so determined to try and win it. So it was a brilliant competition, one that I really think back of um, fondly, very fondly. Yeah, it must be amazing to compete on home turf yeah it, it always is you know competing on home turf elevates you that little bit more because you do have that bit more support now, there's a little bit more pressure but if you know how to handle that and you can thrive under that you know and i do kind of love that pressure then i think you know you can do amazing things and i think this is why you always see the home countries step up whenever they have a major championships you know where, wherever it may be the athletes tend to step up because they are at home you know friends and family can watch it's it's kind of a dream scenario so you somehow some way you're able to get that little bit extra out of your body and perform really well now obviously some people will fold in, under those conditions but most people will step up to the plate and, and do well and then in the summer season of 2007 um, problems started for you with with injuries um, yeah you suffered a hamstring rupture during a meeting in Madrid. Uh, mm-hmm. It was an injury that disturbed you a lot during the following Olympic season. Uh, yeah. Tell us about the injury and how you recovered and moved on from that. It was a horrible injury um, at the time. One that kind of come come out of nowhere. And I remember that competition in Madrid quite well because I wasn't actually meant to go to that competition. I was supposed to be competing in one of the the golden leagues at the time and even though i was ranked i think in the top five in the world for whatever reason i couldn't get into those competitions which i remember really annoyed me that i couldn't get into them so i kind of went into the mindset in madrid that i really wanted to jump out of the pit 
to show people how far I could jump. Um, and then unfortunately, in that competition, I'm, I, I just felt my hamstring go when I went to take off. And I remember just hopping kind of all the way through into, into the pit. Um, laid at the end of the pit thinking, oh, geez, you know, what's, what's, what the hell is this? And just kind of hoping and praying it wasn't that bad. Uh, I saw a physio immediately afterwards and they was basically saying that they could feel a hole in my hamstring. And I was thinking, nah, I was just, I was denying it in my head, you know, just completely thinking, nah, they're wrong. That's, you know, that's, that can't be true. Got back to the UK, had a scan and that was correct. You know, I had a, a grade three hamstring tear in my left hamstring. So it meant that that, that season was, was gone, which again was a very big blow to take because after that indoor season and being so confident, you know, I was ranked number two in the world. Um, I was really confident of going to that world championships and, you know, doing well, you know, obviously two years before in Helsinki, I still had that kind of upset in my head. So I was determined this time to put that to bed. And unfortunately, obviously, I, asked, I had to sit at home and, and watch it. And a good friend of mine, Nelson Ovora, managed to obviously win it with 17-17. I was really happy for Nelson because, you know, Nelson's a really nice guy and, and I like Nelson. At the same time, I couldn't help be a little bit kind of jealous of it because I was thinking, you know, those last couple of years, I'd been beating Nelson and obviously he'd beaten me a couple of times too, but we was tussling and there he goes and, you know, wins that, that world championship. So it was, it was quite gutting for me not to be there. But that hamstring injury disrupted me for the best part of four years. That's how bad that hamstring injury was. You know, we had rehabilitated it, but it was, there were so many different issues that I had to start using doctors outside of the UK because our medical team didn't really know what was going on. So I started working with doctors in Holland and Germany, etc., to kind of fix me. And it took really until 2011 for me to get that hamstring correct. Yeah. And if we jump into 2011 you your hamstring was good but during a training camp in italy you suffered another major injury when your yeah. when your foot went straight through a plyometric box in training uh what happened yeah no, so, so it was tough you know so obviously i was seven i said i'm sure i ruptured my hamstring but i still managed to kind of recover from that and go to the 2008 olympics as you can imagine, I wasn't fit. I was struggling badly, but I was still really encouraged in the fact I managed to go over 17 metres. And then 2009, I remember still struggling when I went to that World Championships and managed to make the final. Um, 2010 was another tough year. European Championships, still struggling. Commonwealth Games, still struggling. Um, and so I was just so frustrated of this this one hamstring injury because it would always kind of cramp up or it would, I'd pull it again or whatever it may be. So we finally kind of got to the bottom of it after I started to see different doctors. And in 2011, we went to a training camp in, in Formia in Italy. And finally, everything was working brilliantly now. I was able to run properly, jump properly. So I was really happy and I was looking in really good shape. Then on the last day of that training camp, we were doing a plyometrics drill where you kind of, you, you would have probably seen a lot of triple jumpers do it, where you kind of, your run, you kind of land on one box, take off, land on the ground and onto the next plyometric box, onto the ground, jump into the pit, you know, that kind of kind of drill. Yeah. So I was, was working on my hop and on the last box, as I landed on it, I heard a massive crack and I just kind of span round because I felt something give and I automatically thought I, I must have broken my ankle. That's what I thought. But I looked down at my ankle, my ankle was fine. So I thought, oh, okay. So I walked back towards the box and I saw this massive crater in the box and then I looked back down at my ankle again and my ankle just ballooned it was, I was just ballooning before my eyes and then the pain hit and then that's when I realized obviously I'd done something bad to my ankle and so I remember they they turned the box over to have a look and the box had snapped basically the box was was rotten um so obviously I'd just gone straight through it and we had a scan when we got back to the UK and at first um, I was told that I just had a bad sprain. So I was like, okay, cool. Like, I can take a bad sprain. You know, that means I'm going to be out for probably about a month to six weeks, but I can probably still, you know, make the World Championships this year and I'll be fine for the 2012 Olympics. The next day, I then got a call from, from our medical team to tell me that they was wrong. And I'd actually ruptured three ligaments in my left ankle. And that obviously this was my second career-threatening injury because... The hamstring injury I had in 2007 was bad enough to end a career, basically. But I was determined to not allow that to happen. And so, you know, I was really happy to get back and then to suddenly take 
this massive blow in 2011, I just said to them, look, well, I'm going to be back in time for 2012 Olympics. And I was like, look, forget about 2012 Olympics. You need to think whether you're going to be able to jump again. You know, we need to, to see if we can do that. And immediately again, because of my mind, I was like, I will definitely jump again and I'll be back in time for the 2012 Olympic Games. And I remember saying to the media that I will leave absolutely no stone unturned. And I never, you know, I rehabbed like crazy. I saw every doctor that I possibly could to make sure that it was healing really, really well. Um, and, it, and it did heal well. You know, I managed to get it back to a decent state for the 2012 year. It probably wasn't still at its absolute best, but I got back to for the 2012 year. And then when I went to, I went to Holland, um, Hengelo, for my first competition of the season, I think because my ankle was probably still a little bit unstable, I went down in that competition and my hamstring went again on takeoff. But this time I ruptured my conjoined hamstring tendon. And so I'd suffered my third career threatening injury, um, mm. which obviously meant that the, the 2012 Olympic Games was completely gone. But again, I had to think about whether I could save my career rather than even just the Olympic Games. So that was, it was a very testing time for me to uh, 2012. And personally, I, I also had kind of uh, things going on in my personal life. So my, my granddad, who is like a father figure to me, was struggling with cancer at the time. So I was kind of going in and out of hospital to, to make sure that he was okay. And then unfortunately, in the September, he passed away. Um, oh. So so 2012 was was a really tough time for me to, to not go to a home Olympic Games, which obviously you can imagine would have been a dream to go there and win gold in front of friends and family. Um, to also my, you know, my granddad passing away. And I look back at that time and I think it was horrible that obviously I didn't make the 2012 Olympic Games. But what it actually meant was I actually got to spend more time with my granddad in hospital. And so for me, I actually look back and think I wouldn't change a thing because it, it just meant that I could really spend those last precious moments with my with my granddad. So I truly believe I wasn't meant to go to that Olympic Games so I could spend more time with, with my granddad as he was unfortunately slowly passing away. Yeah, but it was, you had a lot of bad luck during during those years. It was it was very tough, you know. It was very tough to take, and there was some bad luck with that, and it kind of increased a little bit more because after that year, um, British Athletics then decided to to drop me from our uh, national lottery program, which was tough because obviously I was still in the middle of rehabilitating my left ankle, but also rehabilitating my hamstring. And I remember saying to them at the time, I was like, well, you know, how am I supposed to rehab this? I I don't know what I've got to do. You know, can I get like a little bit of medical support or something? And they just said no. So, you know, I kind of felt like my my national government body just threw me to the wolves, really, because now I was out there on my own, had to find uh, how I was going to rehabilitate my ankle further and rehabilitate my hamstring injury, which obviously I had no idea to do. So I had to kind of find and sort my own medical team, really, to, to help me through that tough period. After all of these horrible uh, things that happened to you, what did you learn from that? How did it make you stronger? I think I've always known from from a young boy that I have a very strong mindset. I think that's the that's my biggest strength, really, is, is my mental strength. So I always knew that. But I think these this tough period proved to me that that really is my biggest strength. That you know you you can get through anything if you truly believe that you can you can get through absolutely anything. You're going to have people that are going to doubt. They're always going to doubt you and say you can't get back from this or you can't do this, you can't do that. And I've had many people do that to me, as you can imagine. Even people that will end up, you know, they've been close to you at the time. And I just refuse to believe them because I believed in, in my own mindset and I also believed in my my own body and my, my own talent of what I bring to the table. So, you know, it's a very, very tough journey. And to be honest, you know, after that kind of 2012 year, you know, to then rehabilitate, obviously, that ankle and, and the conjoined hamstring tendon, that took ages as well. As you can imagine, you know, I'd probably say that I probably didn't start seeing the light properly after those injuries until close to maybe, oh, when would I say, maybe 2015, 16, 17, somewhere around then, I was kind of starting to find some kind of rhythm, but I was still struggling with complications from those injuries. And that's why it's kind of taken me so long to get back to where I am now. But I think for me, it comes down to self-belief. 
And I think you have to believe in yourself more than anybody else. Will you have doubts? You will always have doubts. Every single athlete has doubts. I don't care who you are. It can be Usain Bolt. You know, he's going to have doubts. Everybody does. But you have to believe in yourself more than you have doubts. And I think if, if you keep doing that, you actually start to, to create this kind of mindset and you actually start to achieve things that people think are almost impossible. And so that's why, you know, when people say to me, how are you still in the sport? How are you still here? How have you, you know, taken such a battle in the sport and been able to continue? And it's because, one, I love the sport. Two, I haven't listened to people around me that have doubted me. And three, I've believed in myself hugely. And I think if, you know, if people do that, you really can achieve great things. That was uh, really good words. Um, and um, after the dark period in 2012, you were back competing in 2013 of, uh, yeah. after almost three years of uh, of the track. Mm. Describe the feeling of being back jumping after all your setbacks. It, it was nice to be back. I think it gave me, uh, after all those setbacks, it gave me a slightly different perspective of the fact of I wanted to just enjoy competing. And I still carry that with me now. So rather than putting pressure on myself to perform, I just went into every competition wanting to you know, compete to my best and really enjoying being out there. And it's something that I've continued to do. It was it was still a struggle, as I said to you, because you know I was still struggling with those injuries. But I just done my best to, you know, really focus on enjoying myself. I think from that ankle injury, I probably had to compete on anti-inflammatories until the best part of maybe 2015, because my ankle just gave me that much pain while I was competing. Um, so again, yeah, you can really see how. How some of those injuries can can take their toll, but now you know when I compete, my ankle is absolutely fine. You know I, I can't feel any pain or anything like that. The range probably isn't the same as it used to be. There's no doubt. You know you kind of have a, a, a obviously an injury history, so things do change. But otherwise, it, you know it does feel really good. But I always feel extremely grateful now when I'm competing, no matter what level of competition it is. I just got there to really enjoy myself. Then in 2014, as if it wasn't enough, you suffered another injury, a stress <laughs> yeah. fracture in your spine. Uh, yeah. Tell us about that. That that was that was horrible as well. And yeah, you're absolutely right. As, as if that wasn't already enough, like I hadn't been tested enough. Um, it was just before the, the Commonwealth Games in, in Glasgow. Uh, we had a training session and my back was really hurting me. And at this time, I was training with a new coach. So my, my old coach, so I have to go back slightly, my old coach, Ted King, retired in 2009 after those World Championships. So in 2010, I then moved to Aston Moor. So I was with Aston Moor now. Um, and myself and Aston was going for a training session before those Commonwealth Games, and my back was just really sore. And I said to Aston, this, you know, my back's not fun. I don't know what's going on here. So in the qualifying phase, you know, I was kind of hoping to get through, but back pain was killing me. So we decided to just take it as easy as possible to get through to the final. So I'd done that. You know, I, I think I jumped, I don't know, 16, 20 maybe, but I was just completely chilling because of my back pain. But the pain was still excruciating. So immediately I saw the medical team after that, that qualifying day. Um, and, you know, they're doing everything they can to try and take the pain away. So they're treating me until like one o'clock in the morning and, give me painkilling injections and, you know, all of these things and came to the final the next day. And obviously, I'm, you know, I've taken painkillers and stuff and being the person I've just explained to but my mindset, I always believe that I can pull something out of the bag. Um, I believe that I'd be able to do something in that final, but the pain was just so excruciating, it wouldn't allow me to. So I remember going down at the first round, trying to take off and the pain was just incredible. Um, and my body was just locking up all over the place. So unfortunately, I had to to pull out of the final. So it was another injury that I had to allow its time to heal. And I think really that would have been part of the process of coming back from the injuries beforehand. So if you if you think of the 2007 hamstring injury, you think of the, the left ankle injury, you don't think of the hamstring injury after that, all of those is on my left side. And so I think that caused further complications up my chain. And so my body was was working differently. And so I think that's probably what caused the uh, stress fractures in my spine as well. So we then again had to allow me to to obviously recover from that leading into uh, kind of 2015, 2016 as well. We had to change my training and make sure that my back had recovered. 
in 2016 you were back at the big stage competing at the European Championships what yeah. did that mean to you it was it was really nice to to finally be back at a major championships because it's been so long so it was kind of for me it just felt like you know finally I've had some kind of reward uh for for kind of sticking to it and, and really trying to achieve my goal so again it was really nice to be back there on that stage obviously my head was saying to me that I wanted to be truly competitive um in the final but unfortunately obviously I just the shape that I was in I wasn't able to do very well at that competition and just had to be realistic with it I was still disappointed because actually you know when you look back at that competition to win a medal you didn't actually have to jump very far at all it's probably one of the lowest medal winning European championships that, that have gone so I still came away from that competition a little bit frustrated that I wasn't able to at least jump those kind of distances. But at the same time, it was nice to be kind of be welcomed back onto the international scene. Um, and you you didn't make it to the Olympic Games in 2016. Uh, no. Was it hard for you or what did you felt about that? It, it was it was tough for me. Um, it was very tough and I was really annoyed actually at, at the time because... I had the the qualifying distance to go, but British Athletics had decided not to pick me. So, in 2016 was was quite a tough year because I'd been invited to the World Indoor Championships in Portland, and I'd have, so IWF sent that invitation to British Athletics, but British Athletics turned that invitation down on my behalf and didn't tell me. I then found out via my agent a week later that they had turned it down on my behalf. So you can imagine I wasn't the best pleased, and I definitely made British Athletics aware that I wasn't pleased pleased at all that they turned it down on my behalf. So that was frustrating because it would have been lovely to be back on the world scene. Um, and then obviously I was hopeful that they would pick me for Rio because I had the qualifying distance, but they chose not to. So it was it was tough to take and I felt like a, another kind of kick in the stomach a little bit after everything I've been through. But at this time, you know, I realised what what things were about and that you have to almost give people absolutely no no choice but to take you to these major championships because I think that with my previous injury history at this point in time British Athletics just didn't have any faith in what I could do so it was quite tough to to take that decision and I had to decide what I wanted to do really um, whether I wanted to keep competing or not and I decided that I wanted to because there's still some goals that I wanted to do um, and I'd also promised my my granddad at the time in hospital I would I would get back to triple jumping and even though I was back triple jumping for me that that means you know competing at kind of on the world and Olympic stage and so that kind of gave me that motivation to continue to to compete and I also knew that I could perform you know I knew that I was in, in decent kind of shape so frustrating time again but after everything that I'd been through you know that was quite small in in comparison after you continued jumping and after you jumped 16-18-2017 you took fifth place at the Commonwealth Games and sixth at the European Championships in 2018 and uh, as we said before this year you've done your furthest jump since 2015 is is the old Nathan on his way back? I'm hoping so (laughs) that's for absolute sure I think you know that when you say the Commonwealth Games, again, I was quite frustrated with that Commonwealth Games. Um, I really hoped, and again, another good friend of mine won it, Troy Doris. But I was really hoping that me and Troy could kind of go toe-to-toe a little bit more, but I wasn't able to perform on the day. I really struggled um, on that day with the conditions. And again, the, the conditions were horrible. You know, there's kind of like minus two wins and plus two wins and stuff like that. So it was quite horrible, okay. quite tricky to balance. Yeah. Then the, the European outdoors, wide jump 16-70 to come sixth, kind of gave me another boost of confidence again. Um, even though it was only 16-70, I was like, okay, I'm kind of back on this scene. You know, I've managed to, to turn it on. Now I kind of need to go from here. And I'd finally found a window of, of clean health. And I think that's what's helped me to get to where I am now. Is I've had a really good period of clean health. Um, and that's why I've managed to go back up to 16-88. And so now... For me, it's just about focusing on my technique, staying as efficient as possible, doing my best to stay healthy and, and hope that as I compete and I get even more confident and my body gets used to jumping these distances, that I start going further again. Yeah. And actually, the the European Championships last year, it was 
was the the old guys on the podium, you know, Nelson Obora <laughs> won, and it was yeah. it was actually the oldest podium in in the whole uh, championships there. Oh wow, really? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, so that. I think it just goes to show, you know, that triple jump is is one of those events where you can keep competing later on into into your 30s for sure you know you look all the way back to someone like Jonathan Edwards Jonathan Edwards retired at quite a late age as well and you think of how far that he was was jumping yeah. you know you look at Donato yeah exactly Nelson Avora you know there's, there's so many people that are able to do this and so I think now in in sport definitely I think it's still a problem that people look at somebody who's over 30 and think that oh they can't do it anymore that they're past it I think that's a a problem that now needs to be banished to be honest and I think people need to realize that people well into their foot are still able to perform on the world world scene and for me actually and I've never actually told him this but he might hear this um or I'll tell him soon anyway you know watching Nelson compete still at the top of the, the the world after he's had his injury problems definitely inspired me absolutely no doubt you know this is someone that I've competed against my whole career and we've gone toe-to-toe with and you know similar age and he's still out there able to jump big that's inspired me and motivated me to know also that I can still jump those distances um so I think yeah sport has sport has moved on and I think people need to realize now that people you, you will have longer careers you'll have people probably competing in their late 30s to 40s now because there's just more sports science people look after themselves better people know how to train better and more efficiently than back in the day they don't just punish their body like they used to yeah and uh alexis copeo uh was yeah. actually the youngest medalist there uh, of 33 years old so wow yeah it, it, it's, it's quite like i said it is it's nice to see and it's inspiring because you know i've competed against all these guys my whole career um and i was actually speaking to tissi armas who obviously won one of those medals as well at the european championships not yeah. too long ago and we was reminiscing about some of these competitions that we've had against each other so it's you know it is nice to see some of these people that I've started my career against to still be there in the mix as well. It is really nice. Yeah, and uh, what do you think is the the main key to having a long career as a triple jumper? You you talked before about the new uh, way of training, but mm. what do you think is the main key? I think some of it will come down to luck as well. I think it depends on your genetics uh, and how technically efficient you are. That's what I think. I think you have to be a very technical, efficient jumper to make sure you're not battering your body. So for me, for example, yes, I've had some bad injuries, but actually if you look at my years of competing, my competing age will actually be quite young because I've missed so many years of injury. Um, So I haven't actually got a lot of kind of competing years on the clock. So I think that really helps. But I think your body type helps. If you look at a lot of the people that are, are able to compete later into their 30s. Generally, they're the kind of people that have fairly good technique. They're a bit more lighter, generally, um, and a bit more kind of like bouncy and springy, you know, what I would call like a normal kind of jumper's jumper. So I think that really helps. Some of the bigger triple jumpers, um, as in the height and weight, I think they might struggle a little, purely because they're putting a hell of a lot more force through their, their joints and through their body. So it's probably harder for them to go on longer. That's just, like I said, that's just a bit of a guess of mine and that, not everybody's going to fit that theory. But I think when you look around, that's what you see. So for me, I think for you to have a long career in triple jump, you have to be very smart with your training. You have to pick your competitions very wisely. You need to know when to rest, when to push it. You know, and I think as the years go on, you learn these things, and you, you know, you become a little bit more wise. So you just have to make very smart decisions and with training, you know, not to kill yourself. Okay. So, you're turning 37 later this year. Um, do you see? <laughs> Back to the reminder, yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you see the end of your career, or do you plan to continue jumping? I think for me, I've I've openly said to people that I'm taking it year by year now, um, just because obviously I have other things going on in my life as well. So I'm taking it year by year to see how motivated I am, what my goals will be, whether I want to keep competing. Um, and as much as I'm saying that at the same time, I'm kind of looking ahead to the Tokyo 2020 Olympics um, and I'll probably reevaluate then. I think for me, that'll be a, a critical point for me to decide what I would like to do, whether I'd like to keep com- competing or not. And I think 
in all honesty, unless I can truly believe I can jump over 17 metres and be competitive on the world scene, I don't see there's any point for me. Because being a world-class jumper or the start of world-class jumping is 17 metres. So, you know, I've obviously I've been to all major championships and all of those kind of things. So unless I can be competitive, I think I'd maybe call it a day. So let's see, really. Let's, let's kind of see it. It'll be year by year, but kind of immediate future is probably looking towards Tokyo 2020. Yeah, I hope you made it there. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, and besides being a triple jumper, you also work as a peak performance coach. Uh, yeah. Describe what that is and what you're doing. It's a combination of things, really. So I work with businesses, corporations um, and individuals to help them to be their best, really, and to perform at their best, um, whether that's to achieve their goals, whether that's to help them with their confidence. You know, a lot of people don't know what it takes to perform and how much they can actually get out of themselves. And a lot of people get in their own way. So I work with people to help them in that way. So I, I go into businesses and I hold seminars or workshops or events around performance and there's so many different aspects to performance and so to help people to really perform at the top of their ability and help them to you know to perform really at the top of the world the best they can it's something for me that i find really rewarding helping people to become better and perform better um and i just i really love the work it's just so varied for me to be able to do that and i probably work with more corporations and, and businesses now but i do still do some one-to-one work as well with different people in all different walks of life but it's something that i find very very rewarding to to work down that line do you think your experiences as a triple jumper has helped you in your work as a coach yeah no doubt you know i think after the 2012 olympic games i, I i've kind of thought to myself i need to start thinking about the rest of my career Um, so that's why I decided to go down this path of being a kind of peak performance executive kind of life coach kind of route. And so I've gone off and I've learned some skills. So obviously I'm made sure that I'm certified as a as a coach. Um, I've also done neurolinguistic programming and obviously I have a sports science background anyway. So I kind of mix all of that together along with my experience and I use those tools to help people to perform. So I think no doubt, you know, the experiences, what I've been through, I can help people to perform, to, you know, deal with pressure, to deal with stress, whatever it may be. Um, because obviously I've been through that and my whole life has been about performing to my absolute best. So it's it's great to help people get out of their own way. Because I think a lot of people that would love to be successful in any area it may be, often get in their own way. They're not realising it, but actually getting in their own way and they're stopping themselves from performing. And I don't care how talented anybody is naturally. If you haven't got the correct mindset and the correct skills, you're going to underperform. And so to to help people to have those skills is a lovely part of my work. Yeah, and we we have tons of examples in, in track and field of people who underperform that who actually have the possibility of winning medals but doesn't live up to the expectations. Yeah, you know, it happens in, in all walks of life. Now, at the same time, you know, failure is, is definitely part of sport, it's part of life. Yeah. You know, you can't let that kind of define people, but you're correct, you know, you will see some people that time and time again, when push comes to shove, they can't perform. But you know that they have the ability to, you know, you know they have the ability to be a world record holder or be you know, an Olympic champion or whoever it may be, you know, or making Olympic Games, but actually there's something stopping them and that they're not necessarily aware of and they're the kind of tools and the tricks and the skills that they need to learn to know how to perform because it's it's not easy to perform at the top of the world. It takes some unique skills that not many people know about to be able to perform in that kind of arena and that kind of level in your life. Um, you know, not just a, a specific thing like a, a competition. You know, for me, these are life skills that I'm I'm talking to people about and helping them to have to to achieve the best life they possibly can. For me, that's that's what it's about. I think I've always naturally had that mindset of believing I can achieve absolutely anything, and I pass it on to my clients and help them to have the exact same mindset really, so that they know they can thrive. And it's great to see some people that have come to me that haven't been that confident or their business hasn't been going that well and to see their business to pick up or 
to see them to develop as a person, become very successful or, you know, a very happy person. For me, that's the rewards that I get from my work. We also have some questions from our followers. Uh, Lennon Mackenzie wants uh, to have your sights uh, on the world record. My, my thoughts on the world record, sorry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ah, oh, so my wow, that the world record obviously is incredible by Jonathan Edwards of of eighteen twenty nine. You know, you watch that jump, and I think everybody looked at Jonathan Edwards as the model technically. I think you're not going to get someone who's technically a, a better model for people to follow. At the same time, I think people need to also recognise you need specific attributes to be able to jump like Jonathan Edwards. So I think some people try to jump like Jonathan Edwards and can't because they don't have those attributes. You know, for example, Jonathan was, you know, like 73 kilos. But in the gym, he was incredibly powerful and strong. And he's also very quick over 30 to 40 meters as well, you know, and then technically very efficient. Not many people have that as a whole. Um, The world record now, as in like, do I think it can be beaten? It definitely can be beaten. I'm not sure that it will because it's just not easy. I know Will Clay's gone 18-14. Obviously, I know Christian Taylor's nearly got it. You have Picardo who can nearly do it. Obviously, you've had Teddy Tamgo who's gone over 18 metres. So it definitely can be beaten, but I'm pretty sure, you know, you speak to all of those guys and they will tell you it might be only a few centimetres away from what they've jumped, but that's a very, very big world record. So um, can people do it? Yes. Will it be done? completely unsure i think we just have to kind of just sit and watch and and wait and see but at some point in the future you would expect it to go but it's a phenomenal world record it really is yeah and it's it's a reason it's it's not beaten yet also (laughs) (laughs) exactly you know you you look at it right now we're probably in a period where we've had our greatest or the greatest period of, of triple jumping almost going on Now, I know Jonathan Edwards jumped 18.29, but when he was doing that, he didn't have so many competitors around him jumping 18 metres. But, you know, I just listed a whole bag of people that have jumped 18 metres, you know, and, and these people haven't been able to get it. So I think they can attest that it's, it's a very tough world record to get. And then Julie Arnold wants uh, to know if you have any tips on how to get a better second phase. Yeah, I think for me, triple jump is it's all about timing. Timing, technical efficiency, this is what I keep going back to. So if you want a better second phase, you almost have to look before that as well. So you can't just look at a step and say, I want a better step. What's creating a poor step, basically? So look back. Is it the, obviously, at the end of the hop? Is it the hop takeoff? Is it the flight mechanics in the hop? Is it the runway approach into the hop? You know, you have to take all of these things into account. So I often say to people, it's a dominoes effect. So you do have to kind of go back and see what things are like in front of that first. Make sure that they're they're good, you're in a good position, and then you stand a better chance of being able to get into a step. So rather than just thinking of the step alone, go back and look at your kind of hot mechanics um, and see what that's like before you start focusing just on your step. Yeah, we we often see people, you know, going all in for the the first phase and then just collapsing yeah. in the step phase. Yeah, exactly. You know, triple jump is so, so rhythmical. It really is. It's not about having a massive hop um, and then trying to kind of get the other phases. Some people, you know, go towards that and you'll have some people that will hop smaller. Again, you have to work out the technique that works for you. The trap that a lot of athletes fall into is they see some of the world's best and think that's the way to triple jump. But, you know, they haven't got the ability of some of the world's best, you know. So, for example, if somebody wanted to Uh, to jump like Picardo. So if, if I do this as a comparison, and hopefully they will understand what I'm saying if they, if they do listen to this. If you were to compare Christian Taylor and Picardo, they couldn't jump like each other. If they swapped techniques, they would really struggle because Picardo is more of that kind of bouncy athlete, more rhythmical. So he goes to those kind of big hop and step kind of phases and really hangs on to his faces because that's the kind of Cuban system. Christian is incredibly quick. And so because he's so quick, he can really catch those phases along the floor. And that's why he has such a massive jump phase, because he keeps the speed going. But Picardo wouldn't be able to jump that way because he's not as quick as Christian. So you need to find a technique that works for you and your body and not just fighting against it, thinking you're, you know, you're going with a technique that the world's best do. So that's obviously the way to jump further. That's not necessarily true. Exactly. Um, 
And now the last question. Uh, if you could invite a guest to the Triple Jumpers podcast, who would that be? This is a tricky question. And actually, I've, I've, I've probably got more than one <laughs> yeah. that, I, that I would say. Okay, you can There's name a, few a bunch. people. Yeah. So I would say Teddy. Teddy Tamgo would be really good to have one if you haven't had Teddy yet. Yeah, I haven't. Um, have you had Teddy yet? No, no. Okay. Teddy would be really good because, you know, Teddy understands the technique behind triple jumping and at the same time, he's one of the, the best we've ever had. Yeah, um, so I think Teddy would be brilliant. He's coaching right now also. Yeah, he is coaching as, as well, you know, so he's helping out of Rafi. So I think he would be great. I think uh, Yadal Gregorio would be brilliant as well, the, the big Brazilian. Yeah. I think he would be fantastic to have on. Also, Lee Van Sands, another good friend of mine. Um, you know, again, he's been around. He's won a hell of a lot of medals, so he'll have great insight. And I also think Trisha Smith from Jamaica, if you remember the name Trisha Smith, I think she would be brilliant because, you know, I look back at Trisha Smith and think, I honestly believe she could have been the first woman over 16 metres, which sounds absolutely crazy. But I've seen that woman hop and step almost into the pit, so I think she would be a great one to have on. Yeah. And then also an old training partner of mine, Ashia Hansen. I think she would be brilliant too because, again, she's one of the legends of female triple jumping. So I've given yeah, you five perfect. different names, but for me, you know, they would be great to, to have those guys on. Yeah, yeah. we. I will try to fix them. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for participating in the podcast. It was, it was very interesting to hear your thoughts on how to deal with injuries. And it was nice, nice to hear from someone who... Has been in the sport for such a long time. What you what you had to say, um, I believe this will be a very good episode, and I wish you the very best of luck in the future. Thank you so much for taking part. No, thank you, thank you for asking me on, and it was a pleasure. So thank you very much. Wow, this episode was super good. It was very inspiring to hear that Nathan has kept on jumping after all the things he have been through and I love that he shared everything with us. It was nice to hear what someone who's been triple jumping for so long time has to say. And I think, I think this episode is one of the best so far and I will listen to this many times in the future. And I really have my fingers crossed for Nathan and Hope he will go beyond 70 meters again in in short time. If you want to suggest a guest or have any questions, you can either send an email to info at triplejumpers.com or go to the website and fill in our contact form there. We're soon back with another episode. Until then, have a good time. Bye. Tremendous speed once again. And he's Huge. It's a white flag for the Cuban. Teddy Tango for la posterité.